0: Hey everybody, it's Tony from Adafruit and this is part 5, the thrilling conclusion to the Cat Laser 2.0 project. So I wanted to wrap it up and just finish up the project and basically build what I wanted to from the start, which is a laser you can control over the internet through a web page. So you see a video stream and you can click to aim the laser. So if you're playing with your cat, you know, you could play with your cat remotely. But I wanted to go even beyond that because that was a project that I did 3 years ago and I wanted to take it to the cloud so that lots of users could actually use the laser at the same time so that, you know, multiple people could access this web page. There's a system where people kind of wait in line so only one person can play with the laser at a time and uh, it'll put people in line and then once uh, each person has, you know, a few seconds to play and when it's done it moves on to the next user. So, you know, letting multiple people access this device and having two components really. So what I really wanted to show with this video series, and I just kind of scratched the surface of it, is you know building a device or a thing that has both a cloud server component and a hardware component. So there's your Raspberry Pi, it's running some code, and then you've got some code running in a server in like Amazon's cloud, for example, or any kind of a cloud instance. Uh, and you're, you have code running there that's talking to that hardware and looking at like, what are the challenges of, you know, you have hardware on your network that needs to go talk to some cloud service. And if you want to allow like multiple users, you know, maybe a hundred users or something or thousand users, you know, lots and lots of users, then how do you let all those users use that one Raspberry Pi. You know, they can't all access the Raspberry Pi at the same time because it just doesn't have the CPU, the horsepower for that. Uh, There's security implications for that. So that's why I've been looking at how do you split these things apart and how do you have, you know, your server in the cloud that you can kind of scale out separately, but still talking to and controlling Raspberry Pi hardware. So let's just kind of dive in. And maybe before I get started, uh, take a look in the description below when this goes up on YouTube and you'll see links to the GitHub repository that has all the code and links to all the previous videos. So this is the fifth video in the series uh, and you'll learn a little bit more details here. You know, the fifth video, this is um, hopefully gonna be like, just uh, we're gonna walk through the whole process of setting up the code as as it is right now. Uh, And so, you know, you can maybe get started with this. But let's just kind of dive in and see what we've got. So we'll jump to the main view real quick. Uh, Let's see, let's go there. And I'll just uh, talk real briefly about the hardware. So I've got the cat laser hardware set up right here. So you can see this is exactly what I've had set up in the last videos, uh, the very first video in the series, we set up all this hardware. So there's the two axis uh, servo pan tilt right here with the laser diode connected to the top, a little laser diode holder. Uh, And then that's connected to the servo controller right here. So the servo controller is connected to the Raspberry Pi. So that lets the Raspberry Pi move this laser diode. So it can move it left and right and then up and down. And so that way you can aim the laser in like any two dimensional kind of direction. Uh, And then I've also got hooked up, but I don't really use it in the code. I thought I would use it, but I ended up not using it that much. I have a little transistor back here that lets me turn on and off the laser diode. So maybe a future video, we might come back to that and look at how to use the laser diode or how to use the uh, transistor rather to turn on the laser diode. Um, You know, in the first video I showed how to do it, but I didn't really integrate it in the code here. Uh, But anyway, so that's the basic hardware that I've got here. Oh, and then also, this is the camera. This is the Raspberry Pi camera. And it's connected here and it's looking down and so go back to the first video and you can see uh, i demoed like the original cat laser project if you have no idea what this is go back watch that first video that'll give you some context of what's going on here um okay so let's just kind of dive in now for this video uh, i'm not going to write the code because It took a little bit longer. It took about uh, maybe two days or so to write all the code for this uh, because I wanted to kind of finish it and complete it. So we're not gonna have time to write all the code, but what I will do is I'll walk through how to install the code and then I'll briefly kind of dive into it and just show you the interesting parts of, you know, how this code works. And really, again, the high level thing that I'm trying to get across here is how I've taken something that just ran on my Raspberry Pi. You know, the original version of this cat laser code only ran on the Raspberry Pi right here. So I could only use it within my network and how I've split it apart. And so a half of this code now runs on an Amazon web server or web service instance. So a a server that Amazon owns that I'm basically renting from uh, them. So there's a server component there that people can access. And then that code is talking to my Raspberry Pi and telling it, okay, here's how to control the laser. You know, there's a, a person in control of the laser right now, and they said to move to this position. So that's what we're going to look at. You know, how I did that split, how I broke these things apart, what kind of technologies I used to do that, uh, because I think it's pretty fascinating. You know, how you can look at taking hardware and moving it into these kind of cloud scenarios. You know, having multiple users uh, use it. Um, okay, so to get started, then. Uh, What you'll wanna do, so you'll wanna look at the code and I've, I've basically documented it in a bunch of readme files here. So in the part five readme, it kind of explains, okay, you know, we're gonna go through, we're gonna create an Amazon web server instance, we're gonna configure it and set up all the code and things like that. Now there are two folders inside of the code. There's a cloud server folder and a Raspberry Pi folder. And I think I mentioned this before, the cloud server folder has all the code that you wanna run in your cloud server. And then the Raspberry Pi server folder has all the code that you need to run on the Raspberry Pi. Um, so just again, making that distinction really clear, like this is what runs on the Pi, this is what runs in your cloud server. Now for the cloud server, so we can just kind of dive in and, and get started here with this. Uh, I actually went and I created an instance in Amazon AWS and if you're not familiar with AWS um, do a search there's really good documentation from from Amazon on AWS. Um, I wouldn't try and do this project if you haven't like spun up an AWS server once, you know, kick the tires a little bit. So you wanna be a little bit familiar with this. Um, You do wanna kind of be familiar with Linux machines. If you use a Raspberry Pi and if you know like the basics of how to SSH into a server, you know, that type of stuff, then you should be okay. But just be aware, you know, if you're gonna run a cloud server, you need to know how to administrate it how to manage it you know people might try to attack that server so things just aren't automatically secure by default unfortunately uh so know what you're getting into you know like if you're just running this for fun turn it on have some fun then turn it off uh you know don't run this thing forever if you don't know what's happening also because aws isn't free there is a free tier and you might happen to fall into that free tier But again, you know, you're using someone else's server that's costing them money, like the power to run that server, the bandwidth to serve all the data. So there's some cost involved in this. Uh, It's not high, so you can look more into the Amazon documentation to see, you know, it's usually like a few cents an hour to run a server. Uh, So if I run this server for a few hours, I can't imagine I'll spend more than like a dollar at most. And that's if I'm running some really crazy fast server for this. Uh, But you know, if you leave this thing on for like a month at a time, you might get a bill for like 50 bucks and wonder what happened. So you know, realize that this is a service you're going to be using, it's uh, you know, there are going to be some resources and things you want to watch. Now you do want to use the Ubuntu operating system at least to follow what I've done. Uh, And I've specifically used Ubuntu 16.04 LTS, which is kind of their cutting edge version. I'm starting to regret that since uh, I've noticed like bugs and issues with that, but uh, hey, let's live on the bleeding edge here. So uh, I think any other version of Ubuntu would probably work like 14.04 LTS is a pretty popular one. Uh, And one annoying thing is that uh, when you go to Amazon and you go to the EC2 service is what it's called, Uh, And so like this is this management console I have here and you can actually see I have an instance running right now uh, with this server. Uh, So when you have a a service in EC2, you can actually go and create a new service. In fact, um, let's see if I can show you that. Let me just copy this page because I wanna come back to it. Uh, So if I go back to this dashboard here, this is showing me all of my instances that I have running and I should be able to, I think if I click launch instance, this is gonna, Yeah, so this brings up, this lets you pick, okay, I wanna create a new server in AWS and you have to pick an operating system for it to run. And they support a ton of operating systems. Like you can run Windows uh, and you can get like SQL Server and all this stuff with that. You can run, you know, pretty much any Linux distribution. Now the annoying thing is though, I couldn't find the latest Ubuntu uh, AMI on here. So I actually had to look and see, and I'll put a link in the description below to this page. On Ubuntu's uh, website, they actually have this really handy page here that lists all of their uh, images that they provide. So if you can't find it in Amazon's marketplace and stuff, like I I actually found it in here, it's under community uh, AMIs. And if you search for like Ubuntu 16.04, then it should come up here. So yeah, you can see these, but it's really confusing because it doesn't list them in a good order. So I like this Ubuntu page a little more. Um, You do need to be careful to know which region you're in. So there are different regions for AWS. If you go to your management console, in this little bit up here, you can actually pick where you want your server to run. And so I'm in uh, US West. You probably want it close to you. Um, so, you know, pick the geographical location near you. Realize though that like each of these might have different costs. Like I think it costs more, you know, to run in like Asia Pacific versus like, uh, I think Northern Virginia is like Amazon's main kind of uh, data center. So, you know, you go in and understand what you're you're doing before you start clicking things. Uh, but anyways, so you wanna make sure you find the right uh, zone that you're in here and you can actually restrict this down. I wanna do US West 2. That's the Oregon data center that I'm Putting my server in. And then you'll see here for 1604 LTS, there are all these options. And the difference is the instance type and how it stores data. And if you go to the AWS docs, they kind of mention you can have an instance that uses EBS or Elastic Block Store as its root file system. And from what I understand, EBS is just like a persistent file store um, in their cloud. Uh, which is similar to another service they have called S3, the simple storage system or something like that. Uh, And that's what this instance method stores your operating system image in, in the S3 cloud. I don't know why they have this distinction anymore. Um, I think originally everything was an instance store and you had to use that with S3. And then later they added this EBS concept. And now I think today, pretty much most AWS instances go for this EBS, the elastic block store. I don't know what this HVM thing is. I probably should know, but I don't know. And so I went with the EBS SSD instance here. So basically this exact instance right here. And if you click this little AMI ID, it actually takes you right to the console page to go and start creating one of these instances. Um, So this is really cool. So I went through and I did this. Uh, when you're looking at an instance, you need to pick the size or the type, basically, and this is where cost comes into play. So, you know, I could pick this X large size that has four CPUs, 15 gigabytes of memory, four 420 gigabyte uh, drives. You know, this thing is going to be pretty powerful. I don't think I need that for my Cat Laser project. Um, and you can actually see they have a micro instance that is actually a part of this free tier where for a year you can uh, run one micro instance uh, just 24 seven. So if you've never used AWS, you might be able to just use the micro instance. If you're just starting out, maybe try the micro instance. It's probably gonna work for you. Um, I actually went and I created a medium instance here just cause it was kind of the next one that um, was the next largest size. I think these other instances, they don't support whatever this uh, Ubuntu OS needs. Um, I'm guessing maybe the storage system here doesn't work. I don't know why they don't allow it. Uh, but anyway, so I went for the medium instance, you know, one CPU, three gigabytes of memory, that should be plenty of memory. Uh, at four gigabytes of space, you know, again, this should be okay for me. Uh, and so I went with that, and then I clicked to configuring some of the details. Uh, I didn't change anything here. This is just gonna launch one instance. Uh, all of this stuff really doesn't matter i don't think like you can control who has access to turn this server on and off with like these iam roles you know Amazon gives you all these options. It's really cool, it's really powerful, it's very enterprisey, uh, but most of this stuff you don't need to use. And you don't have to use Amazon. You could use DigitalOcean or uh, Google Cloud Compute or Microsoft Azure. Anything that gives you a Linux server in the cloud. But just realize like know the differences you know with uh, DigitalOcean for example when you create a server there It's totally open to the internet. It has no firewall enabled by default. Every port is open. So if you don't lock that thing down, you're gonna be in trouble. Whereas in Amazon's world, everything is locked down and you have to explicitly open up and say, okay, I'm gonna allow web traffic. <clears throat> excuse me, or certain ports and things through. So, you know, if you're coming from the Amazon world and you try out DigitalOcean, at least it caught me by surprise, where it's like, whoa, you better lock things down. You've got to use like IP tables and stuff like that on the Linux machine to lock it down and, and make it secure. So know what you're getting into. Cause remember when you're running this thing in the cloud, even if it's just a little rinky dink server for you to use, someone might find it, you know, you never know. Things can happen to it. So anyways though, so I didn't change anything here. Uh, and then adding storage, I didn't change anything here either. So it's going to use a, by default an eight gigabyte large EBS elastic block store image. This basically just means that off in Amazon's cloud somewhere, there's going to be this eight, eight gigabyte file they create that has the root file system for my cloud server. Eight gigs should be fine. I think that's plenty of space. You know, the code for this is just kilobytes in size. Um, But you could create other stores if you needed, if you had a really complex application, but I'm keeping it simple, I'm not gonna do anything. Uh, Tags, I don't need to add anything here. From what I understand, this is how like, if you're making a big cloud with like hundreds of servers, you might tag some of them as web servers and some of them as database servers. And then you might have automation that comes in later and says, okay, give me a list of all my web servers. And it looks for these tags, for example. We're not gonna use them, so I'm not gonna touch them. Uh, Security groups, this is one important spot. So in Amazon's world, like I mentioned, all of the ports are closed by default so that the internet can't access them. Um, Except for SSH, they do open that one up so that they allow you to SSH into your server. Uh, And the way it works is they give you a private key, a .pem or PEM file that you need to use to SSH into your server. Um, So you do wanna keep this port open And for the CatLaser project, there are two other ports that you have to open. So you wanna add a rule for HTTP, which is TCP port 80. Uh, That's basically web traffic, because we're gonna run a web server here. And then you also wanna add a custom uh, rule for TCP port 8080. So again, this is for web traffic but this is for the MJPEG camera stream. So the little camera from the Raspberry Pi, it's gonna get served on a different port because we have a different program that's running uh, the code that gets that camera stream. And so it's hard for two programs to use the exact same port on a Linux machine. Um, You know, you kind of have to put them behind another process and we're not gonna do that. So it's easy enough to just put this on a different port and then the code for the cat server project uh, knows how to use both those ports. So, okay, that's what we need there. And then uh, we'll go to review and launch here. And it's just kind of giving you a summary. Here's what you're gonna do. And then you can actually click launch and that's gonna fire the server up and uh, you're gonna be good to go. And actually, I think if I click launch, um, it should give me an option to get the security key. Let's do it. I'll click launch. Okay, here's what happens, right? So you click launch and then this is how you get the SSH key to access your servers. This is a very critical step and you can only do this once. Uh, You have to download this SSH key at this step. If you don't do it now, you have to go recreate like a whole new security profile because they don't let you access that key again for security reasons. Uh, So what you probably want to do is say, I want to create a new key pair and you can give it some name, like I'll say maybe cat laser two or something like that and then make sure you click download key pair because it's gonna give you this catlaser.pem file and keep track of that file, keep it secure. Uh, If anyone has this file, they can SSH into your server. I mean, they have to know like the DNS or the domain name of your server, but you never know, they might find that thing. So uh, keep this secure and you're gonna need to put this on the Raspberry Pi because well, I'll show you the Raspberry Pi is gonna have to connect to your server also. Uh, so keep uh, keep this thing handy and then click launch instance and it's actually gonna go and fire this server up. Now, I'm not gonna do that because I've actually already got a server running uh, right here. So, um, you know, I've, I've already got it running so we're not gonna run another one, but you can see this is the medium instance. I've got it running in this US West. Um, and I think it shows the AMI that I'm running somewhere. Maybe, yeah, here it is, the Ubuntu AMI. So it's running at 16.04 image. Uh, the other interesting thing is This is the public DNS URL. This is the URL of my server right now. And anyone watching this could access it. Uh, It's not running anything I think right now. So uh, you know, if you try and access it, you won't see anything, but this gives you like the IP address and the public DNS name. So you're gonna need this to be able to SSH into your server. And then you're also gonna need this .pem file to SSH into it. Um, Okay, so I've got my server spun up and let's actually connect to it. And I, I already am connected right here, but let's just exit out of this and I'll show you. So to SSH into your server with at least Amazon AWS, you wanna use the SSH command uh, on Windows, you are probably going to use PuTTY, um, you know, to uh, and, uh, point it at this uh, .pem file. So, you know, if you're using like SSH on Mac OS X or Linux, use the SSH command and use the dash I option. And then you can point this at that .pem file that you downloaded. And you have to make sure, at least on OS 10 and Linux, that it's uh, not readable by public users. So you wanna do like chmod uh, 600, which means like only the owner of this file can read it. Uh, And then the catlaser.pem, which is in the same directory that I'm in. If you don't do this, your SSH command is gonna complain and say, oh, this thing's open and readable. So it's nice they're trying to make sure that you don't do something stupid. Uh, Okay, so SSH-I catlaser.pem, so point it at that PEM file for your server. And then uh, I need to actually give my server name. So I'm just gonna copy it out of uh, what I had above here. But again, you know, you can pull this out of the uh, AWS console right here. So let's do that. And this is going to, uh, oh, it's gonna fail. Oh, that's cute. Uh, Let's see, what did I do wrong here? Let's try SSH, there we go. Okay, I must've gotten, oh, ah, I realized what I did wrong there. Let me exit out of there, sorry. Uh, This command is wrong because it's not saying which user it should connect to. And by default, it's gonna try to use the current user which is Tony on my Mac. And I have no username Tony on my uh, Linux machine on AWS. So for the Ubuntu images, you want to log in as user Ubuntu at then your cloud server name. So, you know, just make sure you get the right username when you're connecting to your server. And so then now we'll connect. And so now I'm connected to that Amazon server. So some server in Oregon right now I'm connected to, which is kind of cool. And then, you know, you click a few buttons and there's a server in a cloud. So, you know, in some rack somewhere uh, that's running my code and give me this shell here. Uh, okay, so now I'm gonna clone the repository that has the cat laser code. Uh, so I'm gonna grab this and we're gonna just clone this repository. And I think that you have Git installed by default, but let's just see. Uh, and if you don't, I'll show you the command to get that. Okay, yeah, so it looks like it's got it installed by default. Uh, okay, so let's go into the code for this. So let's go into cat laser two and let's go into part five. And so if we go into part five, in uh, at least the GitHub UI for it. You know, again, the readme files kind of explain everything. Uh, The cloud server readme. So this talks about what you need to do. So you need to make uh, an Amazon cloud server and you need to open up port 80 and 8080, like I mentioned before. Uh, And then next step is you need to set up the MQTT broker. So in the last video, we did all of this in a Vagrant based virtual machine. And in this video, we're not gonna use Vagrant at all. Like we're doing all of this on a real cloud server. So there's no more vagrant setup, but you do need to set up the MQTT broker, and so we're going to install the broker just like we did with vagrant. So you want to run on your cloud server uh, sudo apt-get update, which this is just going to pull in all of the latest packages. Um, you know, it's always smart to do this. Now the nice thing is this is running on the cloud server, so even though I'm streaming and using a bunch of bandwidth, um, hopefully it'll work. Oh, I just noticed my stream died. Uh, let's see. Hang on, I'm gonna stop and restart the stream. I think the stream died. Let's just... Okay, and hopefully we're back. Uh, That might've seen a little cut there. So something's going wrong with the streaming and I keep getting the stream uh, stopped or it's dying. So we're trying to live stream this to Twitch right now. But for some reason, I was actually just showing uh, on the live stream, this is Wirecast. You're watching how I stream this. Uh, Whenever I turn the stream on, the connection quality right here just drops down to nothing and it dies. I think it's a problem on Twitch's end. So what I'm doing right now is I'm just recording locally So unfortunately you're not gonna get this live and I'm just gonna have to put this up on YouTube later. So if you're watching this later on YouTube, um, you know, bear with me. Uh, We had a few little technical difficulties. That's what happens when you do things live on the internet. So uh, I'm gonna still finish up the project here, but uh, unfortunately it's not gonna be a live demo for people. So you're just gonna see this offline. But anyways, let's get back into it. So like I was saying, you had to run this in Vagrant uh, before in a virtual machine. And now we've got our cloud server. And so on our cloud server, we need to install that MQTT broker. So these are the commands to run. And I just started to do that. So I ran the uh, apt-get update command. So that updates the packages. Uh, And then I wanna run these commands to install the mosquito MQTT broker. So I'm gonna run these commands. And I've already run them on my cloud server, but uh, you know, for you, it's gonna install more stuff here. Uh, Now this installs Mosquito by default, like with no special configuration. So it's completely open. There's no authentication. Anyone can connect to this MQTT broker and start using it, um, which is actually by design as far as how this project works. Uh, I spent a little bit of time trying to see how to secure the MQTT server. And it turns out the way that I wanted to do it using something called PSK or pre-shared keys doesn't work. Like none of the MQTT clients support it yet, which is unfortunate because PSK is supposed to be an easy way to use TLS or transport layer security, which is like what SSL is based on. It's supposed to be an easier version of TLS where it's like you have two machines that are secure and you give them a special secret key and then it will encrypt the communication between those machines. Unfortunately, it's just not everything supports that. So the only other alternative would be to set up SSL, just like SSL websites. And with SSL, uh, it's very complex to set it up, way more complex than it should be, unfortunately. It's getting easier with things like Let's Encrypt.org that are giving out scripts and certificate authorities that just give you SSL certs but it's a multi-step process. It's very easy to mess it up. It's very confusing. Uh, I think it's just very poorly done as far as like how to, you know, set up SSL. Uh, I'm sure there are good reasons for that in history to it, but I decided not to use SSL for this because it is just too much of a pain for a simple project like this. So what I actually did, and I'll I'll show more details about this. I set up uh, what's called an SSH tunnel so that I'm using SSH to securely send MQTT messages from the Raspberry Pi to my cloud server and vice versa. Um, so because I'm doing that, I don't actually need to configure the Mosquito server to use like certificates or SSH or, or SSL rather, or PSKs or you know all this complex security stuff. I can just use completely unencrypted open communication to my MQTT server. And then by using this SSH tunnel, it's going to wrap around that insecure communication and it's gonna encrypt it and make it secure and make sure that no one can see that traffic. Uh, and so that makes it nice and that like SSH tunnels are made to take things that aren't necessarily secure and tunnel them over a secure connection. So it works pretty easily, and much easier than setting up SSL certs, unfortunately, which I think is unfortunate. Like it really should be as easy as one command, I think, to get SSL working, but it never is. So uh, maybe in a later video, I might try and fight with SSL, but I don't want to do it here. So anyways, um <clears throat> That's uh, just a little maybe preface around like why I'm using Mosquito with its default config. And again, you know, be careful and realize, oops, we'll go back to our server. Uh, You know, if your cloud server has port 1883, which is the default MQTT port open, then anyone's gonna be able to connect to it and talk to your server. So, you know, be careful, make sure that port is closed and not accessible um, for this. Okay, so we've got our broker installed um, and now we need to set up that MJPEG proxy tool. So remember that's the tool that lets you go and uh, take your camera stream from your Raspberry Pi right here and then send it to your cloud server and then let anyone access that from your cloud server. Uh, So in this case, I'm actually gonna pause for a second and we're gonna go back to the Raspberry Pi uh, because now that I have my MQTT broker running, I can actually do a few things on my Raspberry Pi next. So let's go back to my Raspberry Pi and I've actually, I've already cloned the source code to my Raspberry Pi. So, you know, my uh, GitHub repository, it's there. And I'm inside of, so if I look at my, you know, here's the cat laser repository. If I go into the part five folder, I'm gonna go into the Raspberry Pi folder now inside of here. And so there are a few things that we need to set up inside of here. So first we need to set up that MJPEG screamer And I'm not gonna set this thing up because I've already got it set up and running. Um, Go back to the second video, um, or actually the first video I I showed how to set up MJPEG streamer. And then the second video I showed how to make a little service. But I've just got it set up and running already on my Raspberry Pi. And I'll actually show you, I have a systemd service that's running it right now. So if I run systemctl status of the mjpeg.service, you can see this thing's running and I can even show you if I go to my Raspberry Pi on uh, port 8080, then it's gonna show me, here's my uh, video stream. So if I go to the stream, then you can see, you know here's the camera image right here. So there's my hand in front of it. Uh, so, okay, so that's running. So you've gotta get MJPEG streamer running on your Raspberry Pi. Uh, and then the next thing that I wanna do is, let's just go ahead and calibrate the laser driver that runs on the Raspberry Pi because you know this is the Raspberry Pi half of the code. It's actually running the code that talks to the laser and tells it to move to a certain position. Now there, there's two there are two things you need to do. First, you need to run the laser server locally on the Raspberry Pi to go through a quick little calibration process. And then from that calibration process, you'll get this calibration.json file and you wanna grab that file and uh, use that with the laser driver. And so the laser driver is a separate piece of code. So this is all inside of the uh, GitHub repository. So and here's the laser server code we're gonna run, then here's the laser driver we're gonna run. And the laser driver is what's actually gonna run and connect to the MQTT server on our cloud server, on our Ubuntu cloud server and wait and listen for commands that say, okay, target this position. So let's do that calibration process first. So uh, I wanna go into the laser server directory and there's a little bit of setup you need to do. So you need to uh, apt-get install Python 3, Python 3 dev, Python 3 uh, dash uh, pip. These are the main packages that we need to use Python 3. All of this code is Python 3, basically. I've already got these installed. Then once you have that installed, you wanna sudo pip3 install flask, uh, and that should be it, actually. Uh, Flask, and sorry, and paho-mqtt. So install these libraries. I've already got them installed on my machine, so I don't need to do anything, but that's kind of the basic setup that you need to do. And now for the laser server, uh, you basically just wanna run this. Uh, So you just wanna run uh, sudo Python three laser, uh, or sorry, server.py. And what this is gonna do, and you can see the server actually just moved. It's running the laser, the cat laser code. And so now I can connect to HTTP Raspberry Pi port 5000, which is the port that it uses. Uh, And now you'll see some cool things. So this is actually showing me here is the video stream from the uh, cat laser, and then uh, now I can go through and calibrate this. So it shows kind of this aiming rectangle, and I can manually move. So if I click these buttons, they're moving the servo. So you can see the servo uh, moving right here in the you know in the upper right hand corner. And then if you look at the video, here is actually where the laser dot is. So you can see it's projected down on the floor kind of beneath me here. And so just by you know moving these servos, I can individually move this uh, laser. So I can move it up and down and kind of position it anywhere. Now the calibration process, the way this works is you drag these little handles around and you want to make like a rectangle or a trapezoid uh, because it's kind of trying to show like there's a perspective when you're looking down at the floor. Uh, This is only used in this calibration process. So you know make like a trapezoid shape like this uh, and then click next and it's kind of walking through and telling you what you wanna do. So then now it's circling this point and I need to move the laser up to that point by adjusting the servos. So I'm just gonna change their positions and kind of drag them up here and we'll move this guy over. So he's pretty close to the center. You don't have to get it exactly in the center, but get it pretty close and then click next. Now it moves over to this point. So I'm gonna ratchet the laser over here and you can see how it kind of moves in like an arc as it goes through here. So we'll see if I can get that up. Yeah, it's pretty close to the center. We'll say next, now I need to move it down. So we ratchet it down there and then over the right a little bit and then back up a little bit and then maybe left a little bit, down a teeny bit. Ah, that's close enough, we'll say. And then move it over to this position. So we'll move it this way. And then I need to go down a bit, oops, wrong way. And then left a little more. And how about up teeny, oh, nope. Uh that's close enough, we'll say. So we click finish. Okay, now at this point, so if I click somewhere, you can see how it moves the laser, you know, to be in that position and it's it's not perfect. Um, you know, the aiming is uh, like, oh, it's pretty much spot on in that point. But, you know, there's this perspective transformation that I'm not doing exactly correctly because it's hard to position the laser. Um, you know, it's, it's moving it in like uh, polar coordinates in some ways, you know, it's like moving it left and right and up and down, like around a sphere but the floor is like at a different angle. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty close. You know, we're moving the laser in the general vicinity of um, where I'm clicking here. So, okay, so once this all works, then we're done. We've calibrated the laser and we can close this. And if I go back to the Raspberry Pi, I'll just hit control C, this stops everything. And now you'll see there's this calibration.json file. That's very important. So that's the calibration data it's stored in there after I finish the calibration. So I'm gonna go back up I'm gonna go into the laser driver directory. And so in the laser driver, uh, it has a calibration, but by default, you're not gonna see this file here. You actually wanna copy the calibration from the laser server into the laser driver. So I'm gonna do that here. So I'm gonna copy the laser server uh, calibration.json into the directory as the laser driver right here. So I'll hit enter. So that overwrites it. That basically just gives me a new laser driver. Um, And then there's a little bit of code that you might need to change in here. So if I look at the driver.py, this gives me some configuration. Now you probably don't need to change any of this, but if you need to, you can change which MQTT server this connects to. Now notice it's connecting to localhost. It's gonna try to connect to the Raspberry Pi. So it's expecting an MQTT server to run on the Raspberry Pi. But I'll show you what we're going to do. This is how we're going to set up this SSH tunnel to secure the communication between the Raspberry Pi and our cloud server, our Ubuntu cloud server. Um, So we're going to keep this at localhost. And then laser GPIO, this is which pin is connected to the transistor that turns on and off the laser, the base of that transistor. Uh, so 23 is what we used in the original uh, video for this, uh, the hardware that, that we built all this with. So I'm not gonna change anything, I don't need to, but I just wanna show you what that is. Okay, so before we run the laser driver, well, in fact, um, let's uh, actually, let me do something real quick because I have this SSH tunnel running already, but uh, let me let me kill it, let me stop the process. So, it's this process right here. So, let me just kill that process. All right, so we'll say uh, sudo kill 910.815. And okay, so that should be killed. And let me just double check and make sure that I don't have anything. Yeah, I don't see shrunning. Okay, so now if I try and run the laser driver, so if I run sudo python3 driver.py, let's see what happens. So, I hit enter and look at this. It says connection refused error. So, it's trying to connect to that MQTT server on localhost. It's looking for an MQTT server that's running on the Raspberry Pi and it's not finding it because we never installed a server there. Our MQTT server is running back up on this guy. This is our Ubuntu cloud server. So, how do we connect these two things? Well, there's a really cool thing you can use called an SSH tunnel, and I'll link to this blog page that explains it in a little bit more detail. There's a really neat mode in SSH where you can say, okay, go connect to another machine and some service running on that machine, like on some port, and make it look as if that service is running on the local machine that I've connected from. So if I run an SSH command, Uh, to set up a tunnel on my Raspberry Pi, I can say, go connect securely to my Ubuntu cloud server, you know, using that security key to connect, like using SSH, which does all this encryption, um, you know, make a secure tunnel and connect to a service on port 1883, which is the MQTT broker, the port that it uses. Connect to a service on port 1883 on my Ubuntu cloud server and make it look like that service is running on port 1883 on my Raspberry Pi. So make it look like my Raspberry Pi has an MQTT server running on it. When in reality, anything that tries to talk to that MQTT server on my Raspberry Pi is actually gonna get tunneled over to my Ubuntu cloud server. It's gonna be encrypted, it's gonna be secure, and it's uh, gonna talk to that service on my Ubuntu cloud server, you know, as if it had no idea that it wasn't on the Raspberry Pi. So a very powerful thing. And again, I'm doing this because it's much simpler than setting up SSL. You know, I think it's sad that like this is easier than setting up SSL when SSL is like the proper way to secure things. But to set up SSL, you've got to set up all these certificates and jump through all of these hoops that are just a real big pain. It's getting better. People are making it easier, but it's still not as easy as it should be. Uh, So I'll show you this SSH tunnel stuff is actually really easy. So the one thing I had to do, I did have to copy over that uh, catlaser.pem file to my Raspberry Pi. So I did that ahead of time. It's in the root directory uh, of my user. So I have this catlaser.pem. And then what you wanna do, you wanna run the command ssh-nt, capital and these are just some options. If you go to this blog page at the very bottom, they tell you that this just tells it not to open up an SSH session after it starts because when you create this tunnel, it also will automatically connect with SSH, and you don't really want that. You just want it to just create the tunnel and finish and be done. Uh, So you want this option and then the dash uppercase L, this is the magic option that says, we're gonna make a tunnel and the way that this works, so you need to specify a few things. And they talk about this here. You wanna give the local port on your machine that you're running this command from. So that's port 1883, the MQTT port. So that means on the Raspberry Pi port 1883 is now gonna be tunneled over to my remote machine and then i need to give a colon and on here i need to say okay once you're connected to my remote machine what service do i uh, proxy this to so i'm actually going to proxy to a service on that remote machine so that's you have to say localhost here to say you know connect to a service on the remote machine it's a little confusing but this basically just means you know connect to localhost and then another colon and the port for that local uh, for that remote service so you know, you're doing 1883 colon localhost colon 1883. So this means create a service at port 1883 on the Raspberry Pi and tunnel it to the remote machine and from the remote machine connect to localhost, which is the remote machine itself, port 1883. So the MQTT server running on the remote machine. Um, So, you know, it's a little confusing, but that's, that's what it's doing there. Um, And then I need to specify the uh, key, so that dash I option, just like when I connected my server, and I need to point it at my uh, catlaser.pem file that I copied to my Raspberry Pi. And then I need to give my server name and my username also. So Ubuntu at, and I'm gonna go copy the server name right here. So I copy that out and I'll paste it in here and uh, it's gonna run and it's not doing anything. So you, don't, you won't see anything. It's just running and it's created this tunnel. Uh, now the problem is I also need to go run my laser driver code. So what I'll do is I'll hit control C and that stops it. But if I run this and if I add an ampersand at the end, this is gonna run it and then put it in the background. So it'll keep running, but I can go and run other commands in the foreground here. And you'll actually see it gives you, here's the process ID for the process that's running in the background. And so when I ran this PS uh, aux command, this basically lists all the running processes and then grep for SSH, now you can see hey, notice this, here's this command that I just ran, that ssh-nntl-i and then here's my Ubuntu cloud server. So you can see this thing's running and here's the process ID, which just happens to be the same one that it gave me here. Um, So that's just useful to know that this thing's running in the background, but now I've still got my command prompt and I can go run other stuff. So let's try and run our laser driver again, because remember, it was trying to connect to localhost To the MQTT server on localhost. Let's see what happens now. So, I'm gonna go back, we're gonna run sudo python3 driver, and now we see hey, check this out connected to MQTT server. So, that's pretty cool. We are connected to our server on our Ubuntu cloud uh, server, and it's, you know, I haven't opened any ports on my Ubuntu cloud server. Like, port 1883 on my cloud server is not open but I've created that SSH tunnel and that's done the magic for me to say, okay, now let's go and you know, uh, anything that connects locally to the Raspberry Pi is going to get forwarded to my remote server and it's going to be encrypted. It's going to be secure and I'll feel safe about this um, and oh, here comes the cat. So she uh, she's going to be the star of the show here. So it's going to try and move her out of the way because the laser is calibrated right now. So I don't want her to... Uh, to mess it up, and uh, then we have to recalibrate it. Because if, if you move the the laser out of position right now, it's it changes the calibration. Okay, so uh, okay, so now we've got our MQTT server set up. We've got our laser driver set up and running. So if I actually go to my um, to my Ubuntu server here, and if uh, since I installed those Mosquito client tools, I can actually run the Mosquito publish commands. This is going to push a message to an MQTT broker, which by default it just uses the broker on the current machine, which is what my Raspberry Pi is connected to. And if I pick the right topic, remember in the last video, I have the cat laser slash target topic. And if I give it a message with the coordinates to target like 100 comma 200, then we should see something happen here. So hey, uh, you might have just seen like the the servo just kind of slightly moved. Let's move it to like a bigger position. So notice, hey, the servo just shot over to a different position. So this is good. We're showing that my Raspberry Pi, this is the code over here. And you can actually see the, the laser driver prints out when it receives a command. It's connected to my Ubuntu cloud server. And so from my cloud server, I'm sending it control messages. Uh, so that's cool. And maybe just to prove that like this thing is not open, uh, you know, I can try from my Macintosh machine to use the same mosquito pub command. So if I mosquito pub on the topic cat laser slash targets and a payload of like 100 comma 100. And now I have to give it the host name. So my Ubuntu cloud server image. So I'm gonna give it the host name here. So it's gonna to try to connect to my server uh, by default with you know, the MQTT port 1883, let's see what happens. And so you know, it's, uh, it's trying, uh, it's not gonna have much luck because you know, there's no, none of that's open. My server doesn't allow external, see it timed out, it couldn't even access it. So that's good, it's showing that like, random people can't just access my server and start controlling it. Only things that I create this SSH tunnel from can go in and start talking to my server. So that's really powerful to, uh, to secure this. Okay, so we're getting close. We've got the Raspberry Pi half working right now. So we've got the MJPEG streamer video stream running on it. And then we've also got the laser driver running on it. So now let's go back to our cloud server uh, and let's go back and finish up some of the code that we were looking at here. So we were looking at in the cloud server, uh, the MJPEG proxy was the next thing we wanted to look at. So let's go into that folder in the code that we downloaded. So let's go into the cloud server and let's go to MJPEG proxy. So this is the tool that will connect to the MJPEG camera stream on my Raspberry Pi, and then it proxies it out so that anyone can access that stream from my cloud server. And it just means there's one connection from my cloud server out to the, uh, to the Raspberry Pi. There aren't like hundreds of connections if there are hundreds of users viewing the stream. So real nice thing. Go back to the, uh, I think it was the second video in the series that I showed off more details about this, uh, and you can learn about it. So uh, the code's almost ready to go for this. You just need to modify a few things. So we're gonna need to modify this video source because we need to point this at the URL of my Raspberry Pi because it needs to go and grab that video stream from my Raspberry Pi. Uh, Now on my network here, I can access this stream as Raspberry Pi 8080 uh, action stream like this. And this is showing the video stream. I can't do this from my cloud server because my cloud server is outside of my network. So what I had to do is I actually had to go to my router. So Tony router, uh, which is a, oops, I forget what I, I what, what, what's my router called here? I, it's a t- oh, Tony dash router. Uh, I have a open WRTs, uh, what I've loaded on my router. So if I connect to this and this is probably gonna show way more details than I want to, uh, to the internet right now. But this is just showing, you know. Okay, here's my uh, all the devices on my network. But I went in and I said, okay, I need to go and set up to adjust my firewall. So I need to be able to let my cloud server connect to my Raspberry Pi. So to do that, you're gonna have to go into your router, and it's different for every router. But you're gonna want to look for port forwarding. And so I've enabled a port forward so that if any traffic comes in on port eight zero eight zero to my personal IP address, like my home, my router, it's gonna forward that to my Raspberry Pi. And so this is the address of my Raspberry Pi on my network, uh, which you can find if you go to your Raspberry Pi and you just run the um, ifconfig command is what you wanna run. And so then look for, you know, here's your IP address right here. So this is the IP address on your network. Uh, Make sure I run the laser driver again. And so I'm basically saying, okay, anything that connects to port 8080 on my uh, IP address will be forwarded to my Raspberry Pi 8080, which is exactly this uh, stream right here. So it's gonna get the video stream. So this is one kind of annoying and tricky thing that you know, you're know you gonna have to open up one port and forward that port so that your server can connect to your Raspberry Pi. You know, in the future, I'd love to look at some options for uh, doing this the reverse way, like having the Raspberry Pi push the video stream to my cloud server but the way it works right now is the cloud server has to pull it down Um, so long story short you're going to need to do this port forwarding and then you're going to need to figure out what is the ip address of your home router and so you can go to like whatismyip.org and that'll tell you your ip address Uh, and so you're going to want to put your ip address in here and then uh, port 8080 because that's the port that we've opened up and and punched through our router and forwarded over. And then you wanna keep this action stream the same if you're using the MJPEG streamer software, uh, which you should be if you followed everything here. So put your own IP address in here. I'm not gonna put mine in, uh, even though I've already shown it on the stream, uh, but you know, I, I did this ahead of time. So I'm actually gonna copy in this configuration from the root of my uh, server that I, I just created this ahead of time. So I've got my IP address set in, in there. Now I need to install a little bit of software to run this. So I need the sudo apt-get install node.js, node.js-legacy and then npm. And these are all the packages you need to run Node.js software because this mjpeg proxy software is written in Node.js. Once you've got those installed, uh, then you wanna run npm install, uh, exp- uh, you wanna run mjpeg-proxy and then express. And this is all in the readme for this. So if we go back to the CatLaser project, uh, and then if you go into the mjpeg proxy directory, it kinda says, okay, you gotta run these commands here. To, uh, to do this, so that's what I'm ha- what I'm doing here. So I'm gonna run that npm command, and this is just creating this node modules directory, it's downloading the code for this, and it's gonna install it here in a second. Uh, so it just takes a moment here to do its thing. It's always annoying, it ends with this warning that makes you think that it failed, but it didn't fail, because if it really failed, you'd get a different error, and that's that's the way Node.js works, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but if you see some output like this, then it's okay, and uh, I don't know why, everything on Ubuntu, you always get this warning. It's like, come on guys, like for the basic scenario of installing a package, do we really want to get errors like this? Anyways, rant for another day. Uh, okay, so now it's installed. Now to run this, I want to run node mjpeg proxy.js and, and it fails. So uh, let's see, what is it failing about here? Oh eAdder in use, ah, this is because I'm already running this. I forgot that uh, I'm on my cloud server and I was running this ahead of time. So let me just stop this process. Uh, so notice I, I have a node process running MJPEG proxy right now. So let's kill that process uh, because I shouldn't have had it running already. Uh, so let's kill, oh uh, sudo kill dash uh, nine, the node process, so kill that. Okay, now let's double check it's not running. Yep, it's not running anymore. Now I wanna run node mjpegproxy.js. Okay, and again, this isn't gonna do anything. It's just gonna sit here, but let's see what happens if I go to, uh, and and remember the way mjpeg proxy works, um, it creates a file called index1.jpeg. So it's a slightly different URL. But if I go back to my uh, ECS instance here, and if I grab the URL of it, and now if I go back and I go to that URL, colon port 8080, slash index one dot JPEG, because that's how uh, MJPEG proxy is set up to work. If I hit enter, let's see what happens. Hey, look at this. I've got a video stream here. Now I just moved my hand in front of it and you'll notice that this video stream is a lot slower. So it's not as quick as when it's on my network. Um, and I'll try and show it, if I can show my hand kind of in, in the, the video in the upper right hand corner, like right in front of the camera. So when I move my hand, um, you can kind of see, or maybe you know, I'll move my hand out of the way. And so you can see, there's like maybe a second, or maybe you know, 700 milliseconds or so of latency. So there's a little bit of latency because you know there's a server in Oregon that had to go connect to me and Seattle, uh, and my Raspberry Pi specifically, and it's pulling in this camera stream as fast as it can. So. You know this, this server, this image stream is going. Uh, I don't know, was like 300 miles or so to uh, uh, maybe, oh no, I think it's like more like 100 miles or so somewhere in Oregon. It's going a few hundred miles, so speed of light is fast, but it's not you know super uh, instant. So, but it's still, it's still, I think it's fast enough though. So, I mean, this is fast enough, I think, to do this laser play uh, with the game. Okay, so this is good. So, I know that my MJPEG. Proxy is working. Anyone right now can go and connect and view this from the internet. Like this thing is open and ready to go. Uh, so we're we're close here to uh, to finishing this up. So I'm going to close these video streams then. Uh, okay, the next part then. Let's go back. Oops, to uh, our GitHub repository. So we did MJPEG proxy. Now the cloud laser server. So this is kind of the main component here. So. This is the actual code for the cloud laser server. I started this in part four and now in part five, I I've finished it and I've added on a lot to it. And I'm gonna run it first and then we'll look through the code and see kind of what I've changed. So I'll show you how to run this first. So the first thing is, um, you know, I'm running this MJPEG proxy. I'm gonna hit control C to stop it and I'm gonna run it again, and I'm gonna run it with that ampersand at the end. So I'm gonna run this in the background. So again, just like how I ran the SSH command on the Raspberry Pi, this is also running in the background. So this is something you just, you're gonna to have to do before you set up the whole server. And you know, you could make a systemd service that runs this thing automatically, uh, but I'm not gonna go through that. You know, It's, it's already kind of long enough to, to get to this process. But anyways, so I've got my MJPEG proxy running. Let's go now to the cloud laser server directory. And so this has all the code for the cloud laser server. There's a few dependencies that you need to install. So uh, you want to sudo apt-get install Python 3, uh, Python 3-PIP, Python 3-Dev. And uh, that should be it. And so again, because you know this code runs Python or this is all Python 3 code, we need to make sure it's installed. Uh, oops, I misspelled Python uh, over here. So let's fix that. Uh, there we go. Uh, so, you know, I've got the latest versions installed already for these, but make sure to install these. And remember, you know, this is a completely different server. I had to install these on my Raspberry Pi, but then I also have to install these on my cloud server. Uh, and then once you have these installed, I do need to install a few dependencies. So I need to run sudo pip3 install flask space flask dash socket IO space paho dash mqtt space event so there are four things that you wanna install here. Uh, and these are basically some uh, dependencies that we, we're we gonna use for this. Like Flask is a web application framework. Flask, Flask Socket IO is a real time kind of two way communication system for web apps. Uh, we looked at this in the last video. Eventlet is a new one you haven't seen before. That is a really cool kind of, uh, uh, I/O loop system. It's it makes Python code more efficient at doing uh, kind of web applications and I/O kind of processes. Uh, so I'm not going to get too deep into it, but when you install that, then Flask Socket I/O will use it and be faster and more efficient at how it works. So. Um, this is a change from the last video where we're installing this eventlet. The cool thing is, you just install it and Flask IO will, will see that it's installed and start using it. So you don't have to do anything else. And then Paho MQTT is the MQTT client for Python. So because our code needs to talk to that MQTT broker that we're running, so we need that. Okay, once those dependencies are installed, then uh, there's a little bit of configuration you need to change. So I put the config inside of this config.py file. And there are two things that you want to change. So you want to change this secret key value and you want to put in, you know, some random, uh, oops, I uh, thought I was moving the mouse there, but I wasn't. So you want to put in some random value here, like, you know, like you're generating a secure password. So, you know, go get some random characters and numbers and things and put them in here. You don't have to remember this value. This, This isn't a password that you're going to use. It's just used to encrypt some session state. Uh, and so if this isn't uh, you know some random value, if people can guess this value, then they can crack your session state and they can impersonate users and bad things happen. So put a secret value here. The second thing you wanna change is this MJPEG URL. So this needs to be the URL to your cloud server and that uh, MJPEG stream that MJPEG proxy is giving you. So it's the URL that we were just looking at. So remember if I go back to this and if I put port 8080, that index1.jpg, oops, I didn't want to do that. Uh, Let's go back here, Uh, let's do that. And then let's do port, Uh, oh, there we go. So for some reason it's adding two colons here and so that's confusing it. So, okay, that's what we want to do. So, you know, make sure you can see that stream and it's there and then uh, copy out this URL and we'll close that. And we want to put this URL right here where this is, so we're just going to delete this. And so the reason you have to do this because the web server has to tell connected users what this video stream is. And I couldn't find an easy way for the Flask web application to figure out what your server name is, like this, you know, AWS URL. Uh, and unfortunately, because it's running on a different port, you can't use a relative link in a web page. You have to give a full link, like you know, with the domain and everything. So the easiest thing is just configure this thing ahead of time, and then it's going to insert this URL into the web page that it serves. So you know, make sure to set both of those um, and and save those. So you know, hey, I'll will save this uh, as is. There's uh, you know not much else that I need to change here. Oh, and there are some other settings in here. So you can change how long each active user has to play with the the cat laser. So by default, they get 60 seconds. You get a minute and then you have to go back in line to wait again to play. Uh, And then there's also the MQTT server that it's gonna connect to. But again, keep this as local host because the MQTT server is running on the cloud server, the same thing that's gonna run our cloud laser server code. So I don't need to change anything. It can just connect to itself. And you know, you don't have to open up any ports or anything, a process on the machine can connect to another process uh, on that machine, you know, without opening ports and things like that. It's If it tries to connect to another machine, then that other machine makes has to make sure that it has it, uh, ports that are open. Okay, we're pretty close. I think this is it. I think we're ready to start running this, but let me just go back and double check the instructions to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, so this kind of summarizes it like, on the Pi, like we've gone through this ahead of time already. So we've got MJPEG streamer running. We've opened up access to MJPEG streamer through our router so that our cloud server can connect to it. We've got this SSH tunnel running uh, and so that now we're connected to the MQTT broker on our cloud server. We've got the laser driver running so that things can talk to that MQTT broker and say, okay, I wanna target this position with the laser. Now on the cloud server, we've got MJPEG proxy running. And so it's pointed at my, local machine here, my router, and that's proxying over to the Raspberry Pi and it's pulling in this MJPEG stream. And you know, we're running that with Node.js and so it's doing its cool thing and it's gonna uh, proxy out this MJPEG camera stream. We've updated the config.py with the config with the secret key and the MJPEG URL. So now we're ready to do it. Let's run the server. So this is the command we wanna run. This is just how you invoke a Flask application these days. So uh, we're gonna run a sudo, cause I wanna run as root because I'm gonna use port 80, which is the default web port. And to access that port, you have to run as a root user in Ubuntu. Uh, so we're gonna run as root with sudo. Flask app equals server. We're just setting an environment variable called flask app to the value server.py. And so this is gonna point at our server.py code, uh, which is the code for the cat laser cloud server. We're going to run the flask command. We're going to say run, which is a subcommand. And then host 0000 just means allow connections from anyone. So people outside of my uh, cloud server can connect to it. Oops, went to the wrong page. Uh, And so because I've opened up port 80, remember when I provisioned this cloud server in AWS, I told it open up port 80 and port 8080. Uh, This is going to be accessible from anyone on the internet at this point. So let's go ahead and run it. Let's. go to our server here and we'll run this command and let's see what happens. So, okay, you're gonna see, so it says WSGI starting up on HP 000.80. So let's try, let's go to, let's grab the URL of our cloud server right here and let's go to that in our browser. And now we see, hey, check this out. So we're in spectator mode. If you remember from the previous video, It starts you out in spectator mode and so it's showing you here's the video stream so i just put my hand in front of it and you know there's a little bit of latency but it's still pretty quick Uh, now let's see what happens i'm going to click to play and this is where things are much different so i've changed things a lot since the last video and i've basically implemented a bunch of logic here so i'm going to click play and you saw for a second there it said hey you're waiting in line and then it just said okay now you're playing it's red you're ready to go. So I'm gonna click here. And so I clicked and notice like, there's the laser just updated. So if I click like down here, you know, there's the laser, just move down there. So I'm able to aim the laser. Uh, and you can see it's it's updating. It's not super fast because yeah you know, the server in Oregon has to pull in uh, the, the data for this, but it's pretty quick. It's, it's you know, this is usable. This is playable. Uh, now my cat is sitting here and she's staring at the, uh, the servos. So, you know, I can maybe try and put her down in a second and, and see what happens. But before we get to that, I'm just gonna explain a little bit more. So notice how it's telling me that I have 20 seconds left to play. So it's giving me that 60 second countdown. So this is cool. That means like there's only one active player. And actually if I try and open a new instance, it's gonna realize that I'm the same user. So it's looking at the IP address of the person that's connected. And it's actually only allowing like, you know, one IP uh, to be a unique user. Now let's see what happens when it finishes. So notice this it count the the countdown went to 0 and it just booted me back to the spectator mode and it did this in both of these tabs that i had open so you know it sent a message to both of these it said okay you're done playing go back to spectate mode and so in spectate mode i can click anywhere here and you know it's not going to move the laser it's not doing anything um, but i can go back i can click to play again And hey, I'm back, there was no one waiting in line, so I'm here to play, I'm ready to go uh, for this. Now I'm gonna do something cool. Uh, I'm gonna go grab my phone because I forgot to have it handy, so I'll be right back. Okay, a little bit of setup fail. Uh, Should have had my phone handy here. So okay, I'm gonna go from my phone and on my phone, I have it set up with a VPN. So it's connected to another server and it's going to get another IP address because if I tried to use my phone right now, it's on my network and it's going to have the same IP address as uh, all the other devices on my network as far as my cloud server is concerned. Uh, and so that would be a problem because my phone would give me the exact same view as right here on this web page. But because I'm using a VPN, it's connecting to another server. That other server has a different IP address and then it's gonna connect to my cloud server here. So it's just about to finish up the play right here. So I'll let it finish and then I'm gonna come back here uh, to my phone. And okay, so I'm on my phone and it's actually connected to the cloud server right here. So you can see, you know, I can click, it's ready to play. Uh, So I'm gonna click play on my uh, main machine here. So I click this and okay, now I'm playing. And so you can see I can click the laser and move it around. Now on my phone here, uh, let's see, you should be able to see the laser move. So if I move it over here, yeah, notice on the phone that you can see the laser move. So it's showing the same video stream. It's, It's on my phone. Now let's see what happens when I click to play on my phone here. So I'm gonna try and get my finger right there. So I just click play and then notice what it's showing. So it's showing you are position one in line. So because this, you know, my other user right here is playing, I'm only letting one user play at a time, and so my phone has to sit here and wait. uh, And I'll come back. We'll we'll show the phone in a few seconds here when it's ready to uh, to let the next player play. Because this is the cool thing: as soon as this player is done playing, my phone is going to pop up. So it's telling me, you know, you're position one in line. If another player connected, they'd be position two. They'd be waiting behind my phone. But let's see. We've got five seconds left here. Let's see what happens after uh, a few seconds. So, okay, notice my phone just updated. It said, hey, you're playing, you've got 60 seconds. And I can actually touch and notice that, like my uh, the laser just aimed you know, a different spot. So I can click around here and now my phone is the active player. And if I try and play from my computer again, which has a different IP, I'm stuck in line again. So this is pretty cool. This is you know something that I haven't seen a lot of good examples of. And what I've really tried to show with this video stream is, you know, the whole point of this is that I've got a cloud service now that multiple people can use. They can, you know, anyone can access this URL right now. And unfortunately, this isn't streaming live. You know, like I mentioned, I've got these live, uh, for some reason, Twitch is having issues. Uh, so you're only gonna see this as a video, but I'm gonna try and turn this on for like, uh, a show and tell some some week, uh, and maybe let you know invite the internet to really play with uh, the cat laser here. Oh, in just a second, my phone's about to finish, so we'll see what happens. So it's finished playing, and now it just updated to spectate mode. And now check this out, you know my uh, my machine right here. It's suddenly now it's playing. So you know this is really cool. But anyways, like I said, so you know anyone can access this. It, uh, you know, mo- like hundreds of people in theory could access this. You know, as, as many people as I want to allow my Ubuntu Cloud server to serve. You know, so if I want to like buy a really fast, powerful server or at least rent one for a little while, I could do that and let like hundreds of people access this thing. Uh, but, you know, it's only going to let one person play at a time and it, it remembers who's in line to play and it tells them, you know, hey, you're waiting in line. Or I guess this is spectate mode that this is in, but I can say, hey, I want to play on this phone right here. And so now I'm waiting in line to play. Uh, and, and, you know, more users could connect and it's gonna just keep giving them the next position in line. And as soon as, you know, one person uh, moves on to be the active player, then everyone below them moves up in line. So really cool, really powerful thing that I, I, I'm trying to, to show with this. Um, so let's kind of dive in then. So, I, you know, I've, you know that, that that's the demo of how it works and, and the whole point of it. Let's look at the code real briefly. Uh, and I'll try to keep this kind of short because we're starting to run a little bit long. Um, so let's go back. This is the code for the project and I'm going to go to the cloud server and the cloud laser server code. And let's look at this code. So server.py is the code uh, for this. And it's similar to the code that I did in part four, but I've just extended it more and now I've added this concept of users connecting and waiting in line and you know, knowing, okay, who's the active player versus who's you know left waiting in line to, to play again. Now all of the code, if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see pretty similar stuff as last time. You know, we have the basic flask routes. So this is the spectate and the play mode. These are just rendering the spectate uh, and the play templates. And I went and I cleaned up the templates and the HTML code a lot. So if you look at like the play code, I'm not using as all of the JavaScript libraries that I was before. And I was using like the Raphael canvas to increase the size of this div. And I realized I didn't need to do that, so I've simplified this code a lot. So it's it's a lot simpler, uh, but it's very similar to what I had before. Uh, but anyways, though, my server code, you know, it's it's using uh, the same templates that it's rendering, and then it has all these socket I/O event handlers. So I've got a couple of new ones. I have a connect handler and a disconnect handler. So these are called when a user connects and disconnects from the socket I/O server, uh, because basically in my play code, uh, whenever you get to the play page the very first thing it does is it connects with Socket Socket.IO. Uh, and then once it connects in my server, then my server will get this connect event handler to fire and it can start doing some logic to say, okay, someone just connected, You know, let's look and see, are they already in line uh, or are they not in line? And let's put them in line to play again. Uh, So that's what the connect, and then disconnect is just if someone leaves, I can remove them uh, in line because if someone waits in line and then they leave, you know, I don't want them to just have a wasted spot. Everyone below them should move up in line basically. Uh, And then there's also the target event. And we did look at this in the last video. So on the play page, when you click the, uh, the screen, that sends a target message. And now the target logic is a little more complex in that it looks to see, are you the active player? So like right here, and, and if you're not the active player, it's not gonna let you send a target event to the uh, MQTT broker. But if you are the active player and you still have some playtime remaining, which is what this check does, then it will actually go through and it'll publish that MQTT uh, uh, message to say, okay, target the cat laser. Like that tells the Raspberry Pi to move the cat laser. Uh, so that's what all of these little handlers down here do. Now, most of the code, and there's more code up here that I'm gonna come back to, but. I kind of abstracted things away, so I have this players.py file, and in here I put in all of the logic of handling this list of players that are waiting to play. So I identify each player based on their IP address, and I want to throw them into some data structure that lets me remember, okay, this is the order that the players came to my server, so that as soon as I'm ready to take a new active player, I just pull the first one off the top, you know, the the person who's been there the longest, basically. So I need some order, but I also want to be able to quickly look up and see, okay, you know, I've got this new user that just connected, like on my uh, server code, You know, my uh, connect function was just called and I've got the IP address of the user that was just, uh, that just connected. And I wanna quickly look and see, is this person already waiting in line? Because if you might, if you open up multiple tabs, you know, those are gonna be separate connections, but they're all from the same IP address. Uh, So interesting thing that I kind of had to think a little bit about in this server was like, what is the data structure to represent the structure, the the data, the state of my cat laser. You know, I need to remember all of the players. I wanna be able to quickly look up and see is a player waiting in line. And then I also wanna remember what is the order that all of these players were added to uh, this waiting list. Now it turns out there is an awesome data structure in Python that does exactly what I want uh, to do here. It's the ordered dict or an ordered dictionary. And so this is like a Python dictionary where you can quickly look up, you know, if I have a dictionary of IP addresses, I can look up very fast, is an IP address in this dictionary? Uh, So like if I keep a, you know, a dictionary of users, I can look up quickly if they're in this uh, waiting list or not. But it also remembers the order that items were added to the dictionary. So if each item in my dictionary represents the IP address of a user that's waiting to play as long as I'm just adding them in the order that they come to my server, I can pull them out of the dictionary in the order that they came. And that's really powerful. And I honestly, I don't even remember uh, what data structure they're using internally. I should, you know, this is like college data structures, uh, one kind of class for CS. But you know, it's probably like a heap of some sort. There's like a priority heap that you can use maybe to implement something like this. The cool thing is I don't have to know how to implement this. All I need to know is to use this ordered dictionary class in Python. And uh, this is a link to a great page that explains some of the usage. So you can learn more about it. This will be down in the description below when this video goes up on YouTube. But that's what I ended up doing in my code. So you can actually see in my, I, I made this players class and it creates an ordered dictionary that's basically the core of all of my game logic. So this knows the waiting list of players that are waiting to play. Uh, And then I have to do some extra stuff, so I have a lock because I want to serialize access to this data structure. Uh, because this is a server and like things can be happening at the same time. You know, two people might connect at the same time and my server might you know, get interrupted and like, it starts running you know, code that's trying to access this player's dictionary and you know, it's trying to change the state uh, at the same time and if it doesn't serialize access to that you're going to run into all kinds of multi-threading issues. So luckily in Python, it's very easy to use a lock to serialize access. So anytime I access this player's order dictionary, I wanna make sure that I use this lock so that other code can't access it at the same time. Then I also keep track of who is the active player at the current moment in time so that I know like when a target request comes in, I can look and see, well, is that target request from the active player? If so, okay, and if they have playtime remaining, then I'll let them, uh, I'll move the laser, but if not, you know, I'm going to deny it. Uh, And then playtime, this is basically you pass into this like what's the default playtime that an active user gets and it just has to remember that. Uh, Now this implements a bunch of high-level functions. So you can add a player, you can remove a player. So this is basically what happens on my server in the connect and disconnect calls here. So when connect is called, I basically say, okay, just call my uh, add player function here and add this user as a player. Uh, And then on disconnect, I call remove player. So remove them as a player. And so this implements all the logic to look and see um, you know, it looks to see are you the active player and if you are uh, and we're adding you then it just increases a session count because I keep track of how many sessions each IP has connected so that once you disconnect all of your sessions, like if you open multiple tabs and then you close all those tabs, then like in the remove player it can actually remove you as the active player once you don't have enough sessions. And if you're not the active player, then you you must be waiting in line. So if you're waiting in line, then you're in that player's structure, which is that ordered dictionary. Uh, and so I have the same logic here where I keep a session count inside of that ordered dictionary and I just increase or decrease that whenever I add users or remove users uh, from here. So that's nice in that now my server code, it doesn't have to know or care about, you know, all this data structure stuff. It just knows that it has an instance that it creates way at the top here of my players class and then it just calls the functions on that. So it just says, okay, when we have a new connection, add a player, when we have a disconnect, remove that player uh, from here. Now it also implements a few other functions in here. Uh, Enumerate players lets you list in order all of the waiting players, their IP addresses. So this is handy, like if I wanna send everyone a notification that says, hey, here's your position in line. You know, get ready, you're almost ready to play. You know, you're position one or you're position two. I can call this function to send them all notifications. And that's in my server code. I have a little helper function I created called uh, notify wait position. And so this calls that enumerate players function and goes through and it sends a socket IO event out to that player that says, okay, this is your wait position. Your wait position is, you know, zero or one. And by default, uh, all of these positions are indexed by zero so that you know, the, the first user is position zero. But I just increment it by one so that you know, in the UI, if you're the first person uh, waiting to play, it says, you know, you're position one instead of position zero just because that makes more sense to us. Um, now this room thing, this is basically whenever someone connects, I add them to a room, and I I showed this in the last video, but Socket.io is a concept of rooms. And so this makes it simple in that if a user opens multiple tabs and they have multiple sessions, I add them all to the same room based on the name of their, like their IP. So they'll all be in the same room because they all have the same IP. And that way I can send a message to all of those sessions by just sending it to that room. Uh, and so that's what happens here. So you know this if I didn't have this, I would have to go through and look at every session for this user's IP and individually emit a separate event for that. But luckily, Socket i/O knows that that's a pretty common scenario. and so they have this room concept that I'm using here. So it simplifies it a lot. I just emit one event to the room that's set based on the IP address of this user. and then every session that that user might have, or like every tab they might have open uh, is going to get this same event. For this. So that makes it a lot simpler for me. Uh, but that's all I'm really doing in this uh, connect function here. You know, I'm just going through and I'm saying, okay, uh, you know, add the user to the room. Uh, I'm going to come back to what this is right here. So it's a background process. We'll come back to in just a second, but we add them to that room. We add them to our laser player data structure. Uh, and then, then we just look and see um, once you're connected, I want to figure out what is your current position in line, so that I can send you a message that says this is your position in line. So that you know when you click that play button, it takes you to the play page, and then it needs to know you know are you position one in line? Are you position ten in line? Like you know where are you in line? And so that's what happens here. So it calls this wait position function on my player uh, object here, and so that's I implemented it down here, and so this just takes the IP address of a user. And it looks them up to see, you know, make, it checks to see if they're in the, the, the player's data structure. If they're not, it returns none. You know, basically just means if you're asking for the position of a user that's not in the data structure, they don't have a position, so that's none. Uh, but then what it does is it just takes the list of all of the IP addresses uh, that are in that ordered dictionary. And because it's an ordered dictionary, it's gonna give you them back in order that they were added. That is the magic thing that makes, that simplifies my life so much. You know, it this is what keeps track of that waiting list. So it makes that list and then it just uses the index function in Python to say, okay, you know, here's the IP address. Uh, index is gonna give me back, you know, if you're at the top of the list, you're index zero, or if you're at position 100, you know, you're index 99 in that list. Uh, so then back in my server code, you know, so I call that wait position, I get back your position in line, and then I just, I check to see to make sure that you actually have a position waiting in line. And then I'll send out I'll emit an event that says, okay, your wait position is, the position I got back and we send it to that room IP. Now, if I go back to the play page, the the actual code for this, you can see when it connects, it sets up socket IO handlers for a playtime event and a wait position event. So the wait position event, this gets fired when the server is telling this client, hey, this is your position in line. And so as people connect and disconnect and if your position in line changes, you're gonna get these new events. And when you get this event, it just changes the text on the server. So it just says, I, I just put in like these little uh, headers at the top that it can fill in. So it says, okay, you're, you're waiting to play. Your position in line is, here's the position that was sent to me. So that's the nice thing about Socket.io. It makes it really easy to pass data between the, the server and the, the web page. And then I, I color the web page text black, uh, just because when the opposite happens, so I have a playtime event. And so this gets fired every second or so, the server, if I'm the active player, it's telling me, hey, you're playing, and you know you have 10 seconds left, you have nine seconds left, you have eight seconds left. So every time I get that playtime event, uh, I change the text on the web page. So I say, okay, you are playing. Go click, you know, you're ready to go and here's how much time you have left to play. So it's you know, taking your playtime and, uh, and putting it in that uh, header at the top. And then it just makes all the text red. So you notice like when you're playing, it turns the screen red, just to make it a little more obvious if you're sitting there kind of waiting, like, hey, you're ready, you got a minute, like go play. Uh, and so that's what happens here in the playtime event. And if I go back to the server, I'll show you where that playtime event is fired. So it's not super obvious. Um, we actually need to go back to the players uh, function uh, class and there's this update function inside of here. So this thing is kind of the magic that, that runs all of the game logic. And so this is meant to be called continually by the server. Uh, and so what it does is it basically will look and see, okay, who is the active player? And it looks to see, do they still have time left? You know, Because each player only has like a minute to play. Uh, and if they run out of time, then it removes them from being the active player. Uh, And then it looks to see, okay, if I don't have any active players, like either no one has signed up to play yet, or maybe someone was just active, but they ran out of play time and now they're not active anymore. So now in this little second block here, if I don't have any active players, go grab the next waiting player from that ordered dictionary. So that's the magic thing that that, that knows the order that the players were connected to from. And it's actually this line right here. It's using this pop item function on the ordered dictionary and you have to say last equals false because by default, the order dictionary is a LIFO, a last in, first out queue, or well, that's actually like a stack where the last item you put in is the first one you're going to pull out, which is not what I want because that basically means the last, you know, the most recent person that connected will be the first person pulled off to play. I want the opposite. I want the FIFO or the first in, first out or a queue, which just means. The very first person put into the data structure who will basically become the oldest person, you know, as other people are added, they're added after them. So that first person becomes the first person that I pull off with this pop item call. So, you know, very subtle thing, but I want to make sure that I I get the right user from here. But I pull them off the queue or the, the order dictionary and say, okay, you're the new active player. Uh, And so I set the active player, and I I store a little bit of state, I store the IP address of that player, I store how many sessions they have connected, and then I set the remaining playtime that they have. And so I set that to, you know, by default, the starting playtime is whatever uh, I've configured the server for, for like 60 seconds. Um, And then that's that's it. So I I remember this is the player that's, uh, you know, active, like you are the new active player. Now this function takes a couple extra things. It takes a start active and an end active callback. So these are functions that this update function will call when either a player is uh, made active. So start active will be called if someone is picked as the active player in this code block here, then I'm gonna call a function that you pass in that says, okay, this is a new active user. So if you've got code that needs to run on the server side to go talk to this new player, go do it. Uh, And then same thing for end active. If someone was the active player and then they ran out of play time, there's a callback that I'll fire that says, okay, this user just ended their active play session. If you need to go run some cleanup code on the server, go do it now. And I do something very subtle in here. I actually, I don't call those callbacks from within this kind of main logic here because I'm taking this lock on this data structure uh, on that order dictionary so that you know nothing else can uh, take that lock while it's being taken. And when I call these callbacks, because these callbacks are passed in by my server, so you can actually see uh, where I do this in my, uh, where did I put that code, it's uh, in this process players function. Uh, I'm looking, so here's where I call update, You know I'm passing in a start active and an end active function that I define in my server.py right here these functions might call back into my players.py. Like maybe I need to enumerate all the active players. And a very subtle thing in this enumerate, I need to take that lock again because I'm gonna, I need to deal with that data structure. But the problem is if I've already taken the lock and now I'm calling a callback that needs to take that lock, it's gonna wait for this lock, the, the, the previous code to finish using that lock but that can't finish until this callback finishes. And this callback finish can't finish until this code finishes. And you can see we're suddenly in this cycle. This is a deadlock, and it's very easy uh, multi-threading kind of error. You're gonna make it a million times. Uh, I made this error as I started to do this code. And if you don't run into this, you're not familiar with it, like your code just doesn't work. It just locks up. Things don't work. You start putting debug messages. They don't fire. You're like, what the heck is happening? And it's you know nothing's failing. It's just you've gotten the system into a state where one thing depends on another thing, and that other thing depends on the first thing, and they can't both depend on each other. They'll never finish. It's just your CPU is just sitting there doing nothing. Uh, so that's kind of the perils of uh, of locks and multi-threading. You know, you, it's very easy to get yourself into these situations. So the way I get around that is, you know, when I take my lock, if I need to go fire those callbacks. I just take a note of that. I remember that in a variable, like my end IP and start IP. So you can see I set, you know, if I need to go and fire the end callback, I set my end IP to that. Uh, and then same thing for the start IP. Then outside of the lock, at the end of the function, now I go and see, okay, if during this previous uh, code here, up here, if I set the start IP or end IP, then I better go call those callbacks. So I'm not inside that lock anymore. I'm gonna call those callbacks they're free to go call other functions that might take that lock and everything's gonna work and it's all gonna be hunky-dory. But you know, it's it's not little thing that I wanted to get across here is that it's, uh, you know, very easy mistake to to run into this and it's very frustrating to debug this kind of an issue. Oops, I just lost a battery on one of the lights here so the stream's starting to go long. Um, So okay, so that's the gist of the players.py. You know, I wanted to abstract all of this gameplay logic because I mean, look at it, it's pretty complex. This is like 150 lines of code almost. I didn't want to jam all that into my server script because, you know, that this thing's already 150 lines now I've got 300 lines of code and you know, I've got game logic mixed with server logic. So I wanted to make a good distinction. The other reason I did this is that I can actually test my player code in isolation. So I have a whole test suite here because this player code doesn't depend on anything other than standard Python stuff. It's just using the collections and the threading stuff in Python. It has no idea that there is a Flask web server, or that there's socket I/O, and there's real-time communications and things happening here, and that's really powerful because I can write tests that don't need to use socket I/O or Flask. They just use my player class, and you can see, like, I have a function here in my tests, and this is using this, the Python's unit test framework, which I really like. It's a standard unit test framework. So this test right here, test add players wait in order. This basically looks to see if I call add players with three different IP addresses, then I should expect that the order that those players come back in, if I call wait position, is the order that they were added. So I this test is looking to see, okay, for the player with IP 192.168.0.1, they should be position zero in line. Same thing for the next player that was added. You know, boom, boom, boom. We're going to check these players. This is really cool. So, you know, if if I jammed all of this player logic into my server code, and it was using socket I/O, and it, you know, if directly as soon as I added an active player, it was emitting events and things. It's really hard to test that because my test code has to like mock out socket I/O, or it's got to run a socket I/O server. It's you're just going to go down a rabbit hole of complexity that's insane. So again, very powerful idea here. You know, write your logic independent of like your transport or uh, you know, your, your actual communication. So that you can test this logic in isolation, because this is pretty complex logic for this player stuff. Like, I'm adding players; they're in order. There's an active player; they have a limited amount of time. After a certain number of updates and a certain amount of time, the next player becomes active. You know, I want to test that code, but I don't want to use socket I/O and stuff to do that. So that's what this little test suite does. And I only have about eight tests, um, but they all just test the basics. Like, you know, this test down here. The update function should move to the next player after the play time of the current player has elapsed and you can see how i do this test i you know i create my player class i add two players i uh i call the update function so that the first player is suddenly the active player Uh, And then I call the update function again, but I let two seconds elapse because I've configured this so that each active player only has one second to play. And so after two seconds, that first player is no longer active. And then I actually check in my test code that my callback, my start active was called. So, you know, I, I check that start active was called with the second player, which means that the second player is now active. And I also check that end active was called for the first player. Uh, you know, so my test code is pretty good here. It's actually checking the logic of this thing and it's making sure that, um, you know, the uh, second player is now the active player with one second left to play. So I'm checking that my code is actually working here, but I'm not running any of that socket IO codes. It's really powerful. And I'll actually show you, I'm gonna stop the server. I can run these tests right here. So if I run Python three dash M unit tests, uh, discover, I think this is all I need to run in this folder. It's gonna find it. Yeah, so this just found this testPlayers.py and it found all of the test functions in here. And you can see it ran seven of these functions and they all passed. Now I can like, if I change this, you know, let's change this value to zero. So it's, it's gonna fail. Uh, oh shoot, I have to change this on my server. So let's uh, let's do that. Let's nano testPlayers. You know, I, I just wanna change one of these to break. So I'll just show you what happens when the test fails in uh, Python. Oops, I gotta move over here. So you know, let's just say that in this you know, in order test, we'll, we'll say that that's you know, now the this, this second player is actually position three, which is wrong. And let's run our test again, and this is cool. So this test failed, you know, test add players wait in order, failed. It's telling me exactly the assertion that failed, that you know, uh, I expected the value two to equal the value one, and that's not the case. So I'm getting back the value one from this function when I really expected two. So at this point, you know, I go back to my test code and I say, okay, why is this assertion failing? And well, it's failing because I made it fail. Uh, but you know, if if this was actually something broken in my logic, then uh, it's really easy and really quick to detect that. Uh, so you know, powerful thing I wanted to get across that if you if you haven't done a lot of testing and unit tests and things, start thinking about it, start looking at it. And it's not easy. It took me years to really start to intuitively understand, like you know, what is the power of testing and uh, even just understanding like, how many tests do you need to write? Like this is probably a whole separate video series I should do. Um, You know, I've only got eight, seven tests here. Some people might look at this and say, you don't have enough tests. Like, come on, man. Like you gotta think of every little side case that might happen here. Uh, And, you know, maybe that's true, but, you know, if I write so many tests, like what if I change my player logic and suddenly like a hundred tests are broken and now I need to go debug all these tests and figure out what's wrong. So it's a very fine balance and I don't even think there's a right answer between like how tightly you couple your test code to your main logic. I, I think it kind of depends on how volatile that logic is. If you're changing that logic a lot, then you're gonna break a lot of your tests. You probably don't want a lot of tests yet. You know, just get the basic scenarios, which is really all I have here. You know, these seven tests are testing all of the functions and the main scenarios I care about, like multiple players waiting in line, stuff like that, uh, which is good, you know, it just, it lets me know as I'm developing this, as I'm changing it, I've got some basic tests that tell me everything's working. And then, you know, I can, I, I, if I break things, if I change stuff, if I want to change the interfaces, I don't have to go through and change a bunch of tests. So, you know, don't get frustrated as you're doing a lot of these tests. Uh, it can be a little weird looking at a blank slate of like, okay, what now? Like what tests do I write? You know, just start thinking about like, what is the core functionality? What is the basic stuff that has to work no matter what? And write tests for that. So that's exactly what I did for my test cases here. Um, okay, so I'm gonna wrap it up. I think this is gonna be too long. And unfortunately this video couldn't stream live. I, you know, I, for some reason Twitch isn't letting me connect. But this is gonna go up on YouTube, you'll be able to watch this later uh, and see this is the last part in the Raspberry Pi Cat Laser series. Uh, I'm hoping on an Ask an Engineer, or rather a uh, Show and Tell, I'll maybe be able to demo this live and let people connect to it. Uh, and it won't be Show and Tell next week uh, because I'm gonna be in jury duty. So maybe the week after, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but keep your eyes peeled. Maybe we'll do a special event someday during the week where I just flip this thing on and let people connect and have fun with it. Uh, but anyway, so uh, I'm not going to have any questions, obviously, since this isn't being streamed live. But we'll go back to the main view and let's uh, turn everything off here. And anyways, yeah. So this is, you know, the last part in the Cat Laser 2.0 series. So just to summarize, you know, in the very go in the very first video, if you go back to that, you can see, you know, I wanted to rebuild this Cat Laser project that I originally created three years ago. It was just a little thing that ran on Raspberry Pi. It let you see a video image, click on that image, and use that to aim a laser pointer so you can play with your cat. Uh, and then this version, the 2.0 version. Now three years later, you know, I'm a little bit older and wiser. I wanted to see how I could let lots of people play with that cat laser. So to do that, I had to break the code apart and have some of that code run on a server in the cloud, which is what we did in this video. So I've got an Amazon server running right now in Oregon, you know, 100 miles away from me, that's running this server code. And then the other half of the code is still running on the Raspberry Pi. You know, that's the code that controls the laser. It uses MQTT to receive these messages. And so, you know, this whole series just tried to explore that intersection between cloud services and hardware and how you can kind of scale out some hardware service that you're running locally to a cloud service that you know tens and hundreds and thousands and millions of users maybe could use you know if you're getting up to the thousands and millions of users you're gonna start running into bigger scaling issues, uh, which are actually fun problems, you know, when you start getting into like Facebook scale of things, um, then then things get pretty exciting. But even if you're not at Facebook scale, even if you just just want like a few of your friends to play with your cat laser, it's really cool though. You know, I've shown in this video series how to go through this process uh, and what to do. And you know, the code for this, if if you haven't done a lot of the stuff before, it's probably a little bit scary and a little weird. But uh, you know, just looking at it right now, I've only got about maybe 500 lines of code total. Like 150 for my cloud server code, um, maybe another 150 for the laser driver, and then not much else. You know, that's maybe a few other hundred for some random things. Uh, that's pretty impressive with 500 lines of code. I've got a cloud service that scales out. Lets people play with this cat laser, puts them in line, all kinds of things like that. Uh, now, a lot of the reason for the simplicity of the code, or you know, why I don't have to write so much code, is because I'm using some really cool technology. So I'm using MQTT as the transport layer that lets me send messages between my cloud server and my Raspberry Pi. And then remember, I'm using that SSH tunnel to secure that communication channel because unfortunately, SSL is a giant mess to set up, uh, and it was way more complex than it should be. Uh, but you know, so I'm using those two technologies to simplify things. I'm using socket IO as a technology to let a web page in real time send and receive events with my server. So my server can say, "Hey, you know, you're playing and you have a second left to play or you're in line and you're now position 1 in line or you're position 2 in line." Uh, or the web page can say, hey, I clicked here to target the laser, and you know that needs to send an event to the MQTT server. So Socket.io simplifies a lot of this. It doesn't, you know, I don't need to know about how it works, that it uses WebSockets and all this stuff internally. Uh, it makes my life much easier, and it's a really nice library uh, for that. And then, like the Flask web framework, you know, great web framework, very simple. And you you know, you can see I just defined a few simple routes and some uh, web pages, and it serves them up. And the Flask Socket IO integration with that. So again, really powerful stuff. And then I guess the last thing was that MJPEG streamer and MJPEG proxy. So MJPEG Streamer is the software that runs on the Raspberry Pi and turns the Raspberry Pi camera into a webcam that you can view over the internet with a really fast, low-latency MJPEG stream. And then MJPEG Proxy is that little magic bit of Node.js code that runs on your cloud server and connects to that MJPEG stream from your Raspberry Pi and then lets anyone connected to your server view that stream so that those users don't have to connect to your Raspberry Pi. They only connect to your cloud server uh, for this. So again. Really powerful uh, cool concept uh, for this so and I guess just to finish things off maybe I'll switch to the workbench view because I want to just draw out a diagram that shows um, you know what we did here so I'm gonna move the camera a little bit um, because if you remember in the first video I'll move the microphone over here I'm gonna adjust the camera so we'll see you'll see things kind of get a little wonky uh, here we go yeah there we go so I'm just gonna draw out uh, a diagram of uh, what we created here. So in the very first video for this, I kind of drew out how I thought I would create this. Uh, and let me put a new battery in this light so that we get a little more light up here. Hopefully this is a fresh battery. So there we go, that'll help. Um, so if you remember in the first video, I drew out a diagram of how I thought this would work. So in this last video, the very last part, let's draw on a diagram of how this actually works. So what I actually ended up building. So, you know, we'll say cat laser 2.0. And uh, now there are two components to this. So, remember, we have the Raspberry Pi, uh, Raspberry Pi. Hopefully, you can read that. And then we'll say our cloud server. And on the Raspberry Pi, I have the laser driver. And so this. Controls the servos. So we'll say control the servos and it listens for target events. Uh, listen for target events with MQTT. Then I've also got this SSH tunnel. And so this will create a tunnel to my cloud server. We'll just we'll draw a tunnel over here. Uh, and so this basically creates that MQTT server locally on the Raspberry Pi, but it's actually forwarding it through an encrypted tunnel over to my cloud server. Now, originally, I thought you know maybe I could just have an MQTT connection that's just directly secured with certificates and shared keys, and it just turns out that it's too much of a mess, and it's just way more difficult than it should be, unfortunately. So SSH Tunnel is easier. This is still encrypted though. You know, this SSH Tunnel is protecting this traffic. Uh, Now on my cloud server, I've got an MQTT server running, obviously. That's the Mosquito server that we set up. And so that's the broker that my Raspberry Pi laser driver connects to. Uh, And then I also have that uh, Flask application. So we'll say my cloud laser server. Uh, And so that uses Flask. And Flask Socket IO. Uh, and then the other thing I have running on here, uh, remember, I also on the Raspberry Pi, I have the uh, MJPEG streamer. And so that gives me the um, video stream. And then on my cloud server, I have running the MJPEG relay. And so that's the thing that connects to MJPEG streamer on my Raspberry Pi and then allows any user to connect to it uh, and view that video stream. So, you know, I kind of got, I guess here, we'll, uh, we'll make this multiple pages. So we'll kind of scoot that over a little bit. I'll put another page down here because I want to show, you know, how did the users connect to this thing? Um, oops, kind of got to move, move things out of the way a little bit here, so. Let's move this paper here so I can draw a little bit more. Okay, because I want to show, you know, here are the users that are connecting to my server. So when a user comes in, you know, they're going to connect to this flask server, the, the cloud laser server, uh, and then the cloud laser server is going to serve up the mjpeg relay stream. So that's the video stream people can see. And that's just proxied from my Raspberry Pi. Uh, so it's serving that up. And then it's also serving up, you know, the whole interface of like how to control the laser. Uh, and so, you know, when the user clicks on something, then it can see, okay, are you the active user? Okay, you're the active user uh, and you wanna target the laser. I'm gonna tell the MQTT broker, hey, here's a target event. It's gonna send it over that SSH tunnel to the local Raspberry Pi. And then that's going to tell the code in the laser driver to go aim the laser pointer, and you know change how you've targeted this. And the cool thing is, you know, I can have lots of users all connecting, you know, to my laser server here, hundreds and thousands of users connecting, and they're all waiting in line. And all of those users can also be connected to, you know, this MJPEG relay here, just lots and lots of users, uh, because it's really just limited by how powerful this cloud server is. You know, there's just this one connection to my Raspberry Pi. These users have no idea what my IP address is, you know where my home is, That's all hidden by this cloud server. It's the only thing that knows how to get that video stream. Uh, but then it's proxying that video stream to users, it has all the game logic, and then again these users, they have no idea how to talk to my Raspberry Pi and control its laser. All they know is how to talk to this laser server, which it talks to the MQTT server, which then talks through that tunnel to my Raspberry Pi there. Uh, So we're pretty close to how I originally envisioned this. You know, I I originally thought we would use NGINX, which is a really neat little reverse proxy to do this MJPEG relay, and then it turned out that NGINX can't really do that very well, but we found this MJPEG relay tool that can. Um, You know, I thought originally I could use uh, uh, shared certificates or uh, the pre-shared keys with MQTT, but it turns out that it's not supported by the Python libraries. So, hey, we did the SSH tunnel instead uh, as this... So that's it. So uh, we'll go back to the main view and I will wrap this up then officially. Uh, So this is Tony from Adafruit and this was the last part in the Cat Laser 2.0 project. I hope you learned a lot, hope you stuck with it. Uh, Check out the code on GitHub. The instructions are there uh, to, to see how to use it. But really again, the whole point of this series is just to explore how to take a local hardware thing and make it accessible on the internet in a scalable way that lots of users could access and a secure way. I'm not gonna say that this is like the height of security and that you know that I'm doing all the best practices with security, but I feel okay with letting the internet uh, take control of the cat laser right now. So you know, look for a live stream, hopefully in the future where we'll be able to, uh, to do that and, and play with this. So anyways, until then, I'm gonna wrap it up. So uh, check out youtube.com slash Adafruit. You'll see this video, all kinds of other fun videos check out twitch.tv slash Adafruit. You can see live streams. Unfortunately, this wasn't a live stream because Twitch is having problems, Uh, but I do like to live stream a couple times per week. On Mondays, I like to do a quick look at interesting Raspberry Pi software. On Fridays, I do an in-depth stream like this one. Now, I didn't do this stream on Friday this week uh, because we actually had a maker to market video. So I kind of swapped this and decided to do this stream on uh, Saturday. But then it turned out I couldn't stream to Twitch, anyways. So this is gonna go up later. Uh, But anyways, I hope that you guys enjoyed this. Uh, And if if you liked it, if you found it useful, if it was interesting, uh, you know, click the like button, uh, leave a comment. You know, let us know this is interesting stuff, and we'll keep putting out cool content like this. Uh, So until then, this is Tony from Adafruit, and thanks a lot for watching the Raspberry Pi Cat Laser 2.0 project.